Well, amen. May that be our prayer this morning as we have the privilege to join together. I mention it as a privilege because it, indeed it is a privilege to be together and to open God's Word together, uh, to hear uh, what He would have for us today. And uh, it's a joy to be able to do that with you, and we are always encouraged by what the Lord would have us to see from His Word. So this morning, I do want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, we're going to be looking at verses 19 through 25. Hebrews 10, 19 through 25 is our text for today. Uh, we are concluding a series, uh, our Together series this morning. Uh, we've had the privilege over the past few weeks of walking through the importance of being together, uh, of how we as God's people are called to be community together, uh, to be um, uh, a community brought together by the gospel. Uh, we considered what it means to maintain unity uh, in the spirit. Uh, we've talked about how we're called to grow in Christ, but the context uh, we see that take place in is being together. Uh, how we're called even as we think about our, our task, our calling to be ambassadors, to reach out to others with the gospel, how we do that together. And last week we looked at a snapshot of how the early church did life together, how they lived together in community and fellowship with one another. And this morning, we're going to consider a shared confidence from Hebrews chapter 10, how together we share a confidence and how in that confidence we're called to encourage each other in it. And so Hebrews chapter 10 is our text. Next Sunday, Lord willing, we're going to begin a new series through the book of 1 John. 1 John, we're gonna walk through that book for a number of weeks, months ahead throughout the summer, uh, Lord willing, and we look forward to that time together again in God's word. But today we find ourselves here in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10, I'm going to begin reading in verse 19 down through verse 25. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. As we consider Hebrews 10 this morning, we pray for help in understanding it and applying it to our lives individually and corporately. So Lord, would you help us now, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Do you ever lack confidence? Whether that's a confidence in a requirement that you have at work, confidence in taking an exam, confidence in the stock market, confidence when your team is down by eight runs in the bottom of the eighth. There are many places in life, there are many opportunities in life where it's easy 
to lack confidence in an outcome of something. We can find many examples of lacking confidence. But the one place you and I should never have a wavering of confidence is when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet oftentimes, believers waver with a confidence in the Lord. And that's what I want us to consider this morning, is how we as Christians have a confidence that is rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and how together we are called to exhort and encourage each other in that confidence. How our security with Jesus is a gift of his grace and it's something that we enjoy not based on our performance but based upon the completed work of Christ and him alone. As we think about the church, as we think about the reason that we are, one of the many reasons we are brought to be together as a community is we are to be fellow encouragers in confidence. The church ought to be a confidence boosting environment not a confidence-boosting environment that is encouraging you and your self-esteem and your self-confidence, no, but a confidence that is rooted and anchored in Jesus. That's what I want us to think through this morning because this confidence that we have, this confidence that we enjoy in the gospel of Jesus Christ is a confidence that can easily be lost sight of in this culture, in the chaos of life. And so one of our responsibilities to one another is to remind one another of this confidence that we share in Jesus. Many reasons that we lose confidence in this world, it could be due to that chaos of life. It could be because we wrongly base our confidence on our own performance, on our own abilities, and so forth. And so this morning is just a reminder of the responsibility that we have together to share this confidence, to enjoy this confidence, and to spur one another on in it. We see that clearly in our text today. I just want you to notice a quick look at these verses. And I want you to see how they're organized, and I want you to kind of see how we're going to consider them this morning. Just a quick look at these verses, you can find the confidence that we're referring to. This confidence we enjoy in the gospel fosters certain behaviors or actions in us. Actions we're called to pursue together as God's people. If you look at verse 19, you see, you see that word, therefore. It's a connecting word. The writer of Hebrews in verses 1 through 18 of chapter 10 has just explained this once and for all time aspect of the gospel. He's referring to this beautiful reality that we have that no longer do we come to the Lord through animal sacrifices, but because Jesus, the one final sacrifice, once and for all has dealt with sin, we now have this gift of grace. And now verse 19 transitions to elaborating on how this gospel leads us into certain actions in light of this confidence that we have. So verses 19 through 21, we see therefore, and then he, he basically summarizes in two sentences what he's just explained in several chapters. He says, therefore, since we have confidence 
to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. And since we have a great priest. So he's saying, listen, because you have this confidence, because you have confidence now to enter the holy places through the blood of Jesus, not the blood of animal sacrifices, but the blood of Jesus, and because you have a great priest, Jesus, then you're to respond in these ways. And he gives us three. In verse 22, he says, then let us draw near. Verse 23, he says, let us hold fast our confession. And verse 24 and 25, he says, let us consider one another. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds. And those are the three points we're gonna consider today. Because we have confidence in Jesus, we are now called, exhorted to these three actions. So that's, that's the flow of the text. Because you have confidence, because Jesus has done his work and has secured your redemption because he is your great priest, because you have access to God through Jesus, then he's calling us to these three responses. And I want you to notice that in every one of them, they have a corporate dimension. He doesn't say let you, he says let us, let us, let us. So therefore, since we have this confidence, let us see these three encouragements and let us encourage each other in them. The first one is this, that we are called to draw near to God. We are called to draw near to God. Verse 22, let us draw near. Let us draw near. Draw near to whom? To God. The presence of God is, is the point that he's speaking of. Let us draw near to God. This was a big statement and it reveals the change now that has taken place between the old and new covenants. Under the old covenant, no one could approach God and live. Right? The, the, the high priest could once, once a year. And he did that in order to atone for the sins of the people. First for himself, then for the sins of the people. But once a year, one person was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies and make atonement for sin. So in theory, all but that one, no one else was allowed to approach God. If you did, you'd die. That's how holy and righteous and pure God is. He could not allow sin into his presence. And so under the old covenant, no one could approach God. But now, now God's people are being exhorted to. Let us draw near to the presence of God. The writer says we now have confidence to enter the holy places. Again, reference here to the holy places of the tabernacle, temple system. The most holy place in the tabernacle was a place no one could enter except the high priest. But now the point is being made through the blood of Jesus, all of us can enter the holy places. Not a literal place anymore, but we have open access into the presence of God by the new and living way Jesus opened through the curtain that is his flesh. This, this Old Testament language that's being used here, the curtain, for example, what, what is that? Again, under the old covenant, the Israelites were excluded from the presence of God in the temple. If you were to look at a picture or, or, or a, a diagram of what the temple or the tabernacle would have consisted of, you would have seen just the, the, outer, the outer pieces and then the inner pieces of the temple. And a physical curtain separated the most inner chamber of the temple, keeping the people separated from the presence of God, where the presence of God was. 
But you remember when Jesus died on the cross, what happens? The, the curtain in the temple was supernaturally torn from top to bottom, symbolizing that access to God was now available through Jesus. He not only made a way to God, he now is the great high priest who represents us to God. So there's so much of this, this imagery that we find throughout the book of Hebrews about how we gain this confidence to God. And not only do we now have this confidence to approach God, because we have it, we should approach him. We should draw near to him. Jesus has made access to God available. Now listen, this access we have to God is not dependent on how well you lived this past week. This ought to be an encouragement to you. This access that we have to God is not dependent at all upon you. It has everything to do with what Jesus accomplished. It's access given to us solely through the finished work of Jesus. So the point of all of this, verses 19, 20, and 21, since Jesus has done all of this work to grant us access to God, let us draw near to him. Let us come to him. Let us approach him boldly with confidence. I want us to, again, see something from this passage here. I know that we have a tendency, you hear me say this ever so often, and I think it's important, it's important because I need reminding of this, it's important because I think we all need reminding of this, is that when, when we read the Bible, we, we have this tendency to approach a text and a passage like this and only apply it individually, right? Read, since we have confidence, since we have a great priest, let us draw near, I need to pray more, I need to, I need to seek the presence of God. And that's a right response. That's, that's correct. But our tendency is to only apply it individually. And again, what a privilege it is that each and every one of us individually have open access to God through Jesus. But what's striking about this text is the words that are used, the pronouns that are used, since we have confidence, since we have a great priest, let us draw near to him. He's addressing this exhortation in the plural. He's calling us as followers of Jesus to draw near to God. He's thinking of how believers have the privilege of drawing near to the Lord together, together. Because we have a shared confidence, a shared confidence. Brothers and sisters, this is a joyful thing that we, we have and we're encouraged to pursue the Lord and his presence together. Listen, there is no one in this room, or on the planet for that matter, that has more direct access to God than anyone else. Do you hear me? No one in this room has more access to God than another. Not even the elders, right? No one. We all have access, open, equal access to God. That's a beautiful thing. It's a shared confidence that we have. Therefore, we should encourage each other to pursue God together. 
All of us, because of Jesus, can approach God with full assurance. We can come boldly before the throne of grace and seek the Lord. Let us draw near with full assurance. There's that piece of confidence. Since we have confidence, let's draw near with confidence. Just, just flooded with, with confident language. Let us draw near with a full assurance with our hearts sprinkled clean and bodies washed with pure water, the writer says. Again, again this sprinkling language makes Baptists kind of nervous when you hear that. But it's language from the old covenant sacrificial system. The blood of animals would be sprinkled on the altar as an atonement for sin. But when Jesus died, his blood was the final sacrifice that pardoned our sin and brings us near to God. His blood purifies us as such and cleanses us of sin, therefore granting us this access, washing us clean. The imagery of being washed clean is what the blood of Jesus does for sinners. Brothers and sisters, if we aren't careful, we can base our confidence before God on wrong things. Again, we can base our confidence in drawing near to God on how well we've measured up this past week. And I don't know about you, but if I was basing my confidence to approach God based upon how I've measured up this past week, I'm not sure that there would be any week that I would feel confident to come before God. If you think you've done pretty good, prayed, read my Bible, been kind, then okay, maybe I have a little bit more confidence to come to God. But if I've been negligent, not prayed, not read my Bible, not been very kind, acted in ungodly ways, then I don't have so much confidence. What a miserable way to live. What we're hearing here is that Jesus has secured for us the right he has secured the right for us to have open access to God and we're because of that, we're to draw near to him. Jesus was the one who measured up. You and I will never measure up. If you're basing your confidence to come before God, to draw near to God based upon how you live in a given day or in a given week, you're never going to measure up. So we're believing the one who did on our behalf. Now, it's not an excuse not to live a life of faithfulness and devotion to God. That's not what we're saying. All we're saying is that we have open access to God, and it has nothing to do with, with how, how you've gone about a given day. It has everything to do with what Jesus has done. To some degree, I think we all have approached prayer like that. We begin to be negligent in praying because we don't feel like we're living like we should, and we, we start to feel that kind of separation, and, and it's as if we're trying to to earn the right back into God's presence based upon how we obey him. Friends, we have confidence not based on how well we've obeyed, we have confidence because Jesus perfectly obeyed. He died in our place, becoming the sacrificial lamb so that we could be cleansed once for all time. Therefore, brothers and sisters, you have no excuse to come boldly, not to come boldly before the Lord. All of us have access, all of us should draw near because we have that kind of confidence. And friends, the church, 
Being together in community, the church ought to be a place to help you, a place, a community, a people to help root and ground your confidence in the right things. So one of the blessings about being part of a church is it, it, sometimes we need to be reminded from other believers, hey, <laughs> don't give yourself so much credit or don't be discouraged. Jesus has granted us access. Jesus is the one that has given us. And so we should be encouraged to draw near to the Lord together. And not only encouraged, we should do this together. We talked about that a little bit last week, about corporate prayer and how we have this bold access to the Lord. Corporate prayer and individual prayer, I think, are two things that we are blessed to enjoy in this Christian life. We're to draw near to God because we have this confidence. Number two, we are to cling to our confession. Look at verse 23. The first point is let us draw near. The second point is let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. We're to cling to our confession. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. This confession, this language of confession here, is our declaration, our acknowledgement of belonging to Jesus. That's what he means by that. He's not referring to a confession of faith, let our confession of faith, like doctrinal statement. No, he's referring to our legitimate or literal confession of faith that we belong to Christ, that Jesus is Lord, that he is Savior, that he has died in my place and I belong to him. It's that confession that we're referring to here. We're to cling to that. Notice two things about the confession we see in, in this text. Number one, we see the manner of our confession. Confessing Christ is not a one and done type thing, right? It's not as if you say, I've confessed Jesus, now I'm moving on to other things. No, it's an ongoing reality that we get to do together every day, every week, we're confessing Christ, making known our acknowledgement that we belong to him and we must go on confessing. That's the exhortation here. Since we have confidence, since we've been brought into the kingdom through the blood of Jesus, since we have that confidence, let us hold fast this confession. There are many imperatives in the scripture that exhort us to this kind of living. Hold fast your confession, continue, remain steadfast, endure, hold firm your confidence to the end. This, this language of persevering is all throughout the Bible. Now think about that. Why would the Bible exhort us to this? Why here in Hebrews chapter 10 does the Bible say, let us hold fast our confession without, with our confession of our hope without wavering? Why would the writer say that? Well, it's because we're prone to waver. We're good at it. That's why the hymn writer understood this and wrote that famous verse three of come thou found of every blessing. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. That's who we are, we're prone to waver, we're prone to wonder, we're prone to this. Therefore, the exhortations and reminders in the Bible that because of Jesus, because of the confidence we have in him, let us hold fast without wavering, without wavering. 
These imperatives are here because there will be plenty of opportunity in life to turn back, to wonder, to waver, to deconstruct, to abandon. So we're reminded that we're to hold fast our hope without wavering. There are too many Christians in this world that are, that are holding fast with their hope, but they're wavering. We're just being encouraged here. You can do it without wavering. There's a confidence you can have. Friends, what if you find yourself wavering today? It's probable that there are people right now in this room that have been wavering in their faith. You're not holding fast, you're just clinging by threat. I just encourage you to go back to the scriptures. We tend to waver, we tend to wonder when we are, are depending upon our own selves to make us somehow right with God. But if you go back and you look at this text even, it doesn't say since you've done a good job in this life, it doesn't say since you've got your act together, since you've read your Bible well this past month, since you've shared the gospel with 10 people, since you've done this or done that, no. It says since we have confidence by the blood of Jesus, since he's our priest, let's draw near, let us hold fast our confession of hope without wavering. Because he's the one that's done it. You can have confidence in Christ because Jesus lived a life of perfection, righteousness, obedience to the law, and he died upon a cross to bear your guilt, your blame, your sin, so that you can be perfectly right with God. That's the gospel. He did that for sinners, so that all who would trust in him could be forgiven of their sins and have this confidence and have this ability to hold fast their confession of hope without wavering. And so brothers and sisters, if you're wavering today, why is that? What are you hoping in? What are you clinging to? What are you looking to? To gauge your confidence today in Christ. This is why the church is so important. There are days and weeks I waver. It's true. My faith is not always strong. It's weak and I have questions and I have certain doubts at times. And that's why the church is so vital is because we're a community of believers bought with the blood of Jesus who've been put together in community so that we can exhort and encourage each other in these truths. So one of the reasons by God's providence we are gathered here today is so that we can be looking at this text, hearing these words and reminding, oh, I'm wavering because I'm looking to myself. I'm not looking to Jesus. The reason I'm wondering, the reason my heart is so prone to wonder and go after the things of this world is because I'm not looking to Jesus, my great priest. I'm not looking to Christ, I'm looking to me, I'm looking to others to, to help me somehow. And it's a reminder to us that, that we have confidence, not because we're good enough, but because Jesus is perfect and he died in our place. This is a good reminder why Christian community is so vital. If you live in isolation from other believers, you're not gonna get that encouragement. You're gonna just live in your own mind and your own world and you're gonna be, be, be downcast, you're gonna waver. We have a responsibility to each other to help each other persevere in this confession. 
You know that? Your responsibility as a Christian is not only to persevere in hope yourself, but to help others do that. The manner of our confession. Notice the motive. The writer doesn't just leave the weight of this on our own shoulders. He doesn't just say, hey, get your act together. Hold fast your confession. Do, do without wavering. He doesn't leave us there, does he? Notice the next, past, notice the next phrase, which is so essential. For he who promised is faithful. For he who promised is faithful. He does not say, Jesus gets you saved, so you've got to keep yourself that way. That's why this whole picture of Jesus being the door, I know it's in the Bible, but, but sometimes we use it wrongly. We say, Jesus is the door, and we forget about, and we just kind of leave him at the door. We kind of get in through Jesus, and we kind of, get, kind of somehow got to keep ourselves saved. No, we're called to persevere, we're called to endure, we're called to hold fast, we're called to, to keep our, our hope firm, we're called to these things, these, these responsibilities, we have these imperatives, but the reason we can do it is because we have confidence in Jesus and because he who promised is faithful. The reason you and I can endure, the reason you and I can hold fast our confession of hope without wavering is because God is faithful. God is faithful. He is the one who keeps us firm to the end. It is not left up to us alone to keep ourselves confessing our hope. The good work God started in us, Paul says in Philippians 1, the good work he started in us, he will bring to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He holds us, he keeps us, he preserves us, but we know that we are just not passive recipients of that promise. We're called to hold fast that confession. He's worked in us. So listen, if the motivation for you to persevere in your confession of hope in Jesus was totally left to you, you would not persevere. You wouldn't. If he just left us with Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, period. We'd be in trouble. But thankfully, there's a comma, and we're told, for he who promised is faithful. He reminds us that there is a sovereign God, the same God who saves you is the same God who preserves and keeps you, keeps you believing, keeps you holding fast. Cling to this hope confidently, knowing he who promised is faithful. And later on in Hebrews 10, verse 35 and following, we're told, therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. We have a motive. The motive is that God is faithful to his promises, and he will keep us firm to the end. So let us cling, let us hold fast our confession of hope without wavering. And then number three, we're called here to consider others. Look at verses 24 and 25. See, it's helpful to see this passage. We, we, we tend to just like to run to verse 25 and use it as, an, as a thing to like help people remind themselves not to, not to quit coming to church. We'll get to that in a minute. There's so much more here. We're to consider others. This third exhortation, 
Seen it? Verse 22, let us draw near. Now verse 23, let us hold fast. Now verse 24, let us consider. I'm just saying in general, let us consider others. We're told how to do that. It implies here a responsibility that we have toward other believers. Not only is our individual confession important, so is the confession of your brothers and sisters. Like you shouldn't just be concerned with your own confession of hope without wavering, you should be concerned about others' confession of hope without wavering. So this third response we see here actually has three parts to it. I want us to see those. As, we call, as we're being called to consider others, we're being called to three things in relationship to others that we need to understand and apply. First of all, we're called to provoke them positively. Provoke positively. Now I know whenever we think of provoking someone, we think in negative terms, right? The Bible even warns against certain types of provoking. Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, right? We know that text. But when you think provoke, you're thinking typically in negative terms. And we see a lot of provoking today, don't we? And usually it's not in a positive way. But here, we're actually commanded to provoke others but in a godly way, in a good way, in a positive way, in a healthy way. The scripture here calls us to positive provoking or to stir up, some translations may say. Stir up. This passage is calling us to provoke or stir up others in a way that brings the best out of them, particularly regarding love and good deeds. You see it? Let us consider how to provoke, how to stir up one another to what? To love and good deeds, good works, to, to provoke them, to stir this up. We're wanting to help others, to provoke them, to live the life God's called them to live. First of all, we see we're called to provoke love. Jesus says in John 13 that the world will know you are my disciples by the love you have for one another. Therefore, we are called to stir up, to provoke love within the body of Christ. The body of Christ, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ should be an incubator of self-denying Christ-like love. Loving one another is something we are all called to. We know that, love your neighbor, love one another. It's commanded in the Bible. But we're also called to help other Christians love, right here in Hebrews 10. Provoke them to love, to love and good deeds. A Couple of things to think through here, brothers and sisters. Do your words and actions make it easy for people to love you? No elbowing between spouses. I want you to think about that. Do your words, do your actions make it easy for people to love you? One of the ways that you can help provoke and stir up Christ-exalting love in the church is by loving well yourself. Or do you just find it somehow joyful to, not, not joyful, but you, do you find it kind of your mission in life to make it difficult for people to love you? Typically, I don't know any, we probably need to, to, to have some healthy discussion. If that's how you wake up in the morning, like, 
My mission today is to make it hard for people to love me. I don't know anyone like that. But I do think it's a helpful question. Do, 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 do my words, do, does my demeanor, do my actions draw people into loving me well? Do I, do, I, do I draw love out of people just based on how I present myself? Do you model neighborly love that encourages others to do the same? One of the things that I have found true in the Christian life is I can read commands in the Bible all day long and I can understand what it's calling me to do. But one of the gifts I think that God gives his church is to see the commands of the Bible lived out before me in person. And I learned so much by watching other people. And I've learned a lot about Christian love about watching other people and how they love well. So do you model this? One of the ways that you can, what, my point is this, what I'm not saying is that, and I don't think that the Bible is saying that the way we provoke each other to love is by going around and saying, Jeremy, you need to love more. That's the worst example I could give in this church. He's got that down, right? Um, maybe you need to say that from time to time, but that's not the norm. Like that's not a good way to provoke by just criticizing. You don't love very well. You need to love better. I think one of the ways we can do that is, is to draw it out of people, model it, encourage it, provide opportunities to, to show examples of it. Love one another is the command and we're called to help provoke that and stir it up within the body of Jesus. Also good deeds, good works. These are the fruit of the gospel's work in us. And we know that we're called to, to love and good deeds. We're called to do good things as Christians. We know that it's not good works that save us, but because we're saved, we are called to, to live in good works as Christians. And we're called to provoke that in others. We're not called to demand it. We're called to provoke it, to stir it up. Again, how can you do this? By setting a good example, be a model of what good works looks like. Invite others to join you in various Christian activities so that they can see good works at play. One of the things that I've found in the Christian life and what I was getting at earlier is that good works can be contagious. Another thing, affirm good works in others when you see it. This is big. Because what happens is we tend to only see what's lacking in people. That tends to be my default. But friends, we don't need Pharisees in the church. We need Christ honoring provokers. Don't nag because people aren't doing things exactly like you think they should. Look for evidences of grace in people's lives and point out good when you see it. That'll encourage them, right? Affirm them and what's being done well. You may have a hard time finding something, okay. But when you find it, acknowledge it, encourage it. And that will help provoke them to love and good deeds. Friends, what are you doing to provoke others in a godly way? That's one of the reasons we're called to be together. That's what we're called here to do. We're to consider others. And we're to consider how to stir up one another, to love and good deeds. We're called to provoke positively. Number two, we're called to meet regularly. 
says, consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. Apparently, the writer of Hebrews was aware that some within the church were being negligent upon their participation in the body of Christ. And friends, the Bible does not have a category for a believer that is not part of a regular Christian fellowship. In fact, it's a command. It's commanded here. Not neglecting, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together. This neglecting or forsaking is a willful neglect. We need to get the categories clear. When he says, hold fast, consider how to stir up one another, not neglecting to meet together. This is willful neglect. This is different than inability. I want you to hear me say that. Some of you are watching YouTube right now because you can't physically be here. We're not speaking about you. I'll get to the others who are watching on YouTube in a minute. We're talking about the inability. We're not, that's not being addressed here. We're talking about the willful forsaking, willful neglect. Inability is not neglect. Whether that's travel, enduring a temporary illness, or being physically impaired, these are not the point of Hebrews 10, 25, the exhortation. But there are those who do willfully neglect the regular gathering of God's people. And I know over the last few years that, that live streaming has become a popular thing and, and it became a necessary thing for a, for a season because of the pandemic. But I think that we, 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 we can take something that was a necessary okay thing and it can turn into a permanent thing over time. And that is a dangerous thing. And so this category, and I know that all the elders would agree with this, so I'm going to say it. The category of online church is not a church. That doesn't exist. The church is gathered. In fact, if you're watching our services and you have no intent on gathering here, then I would actually encourage you to watch something else because you can get better teaching probably elsewhere. We're talking about the willful neglect. Listen, there are some days, and the reason I don't get rid of our YouTube channel is because I know some of you are probably sitting at a campground right now watching it. Some of you physically can't be here and you would love to be here, but you find this the only way that you can somehow keep connected, and that's, that's okay. But for those of you who are watching this right now, and I'm speaking to you, and I don't know who you are, but you know who you are, if you are using this because it's convenient for your schedule, and you see it as a good option for church, that's a bad reason, that is willful neglect. And we need to understand that part of the reason that we're called to be together is so that we can be literally together to encourage. You can't encourage me and I can't encourage you through a screen. There are many reasons many reasons why we get together regularly as Christians. And we must remember that attending church is not solely for your individual benefit. Attending church benefits the whole. And I get it, you can actually physically be here 
And technically not be willfully neglecting the body of Christ, but in some ways neglecting it. Because if you come in late and you leave early, that's a bit of neglect. How can you encourage? How can you exhort? How can you provoke? How can you stir up others to love and good deeds if you're in and out? Attending church, being part of the church benefits the whole. It's not just about you and what you get out of it. I hope you do. But it's about you and how you can encourage others. How you can bless them and, and be part of fellowship that is enriching and soul, soul strengthening. So we're to meet regularly. Not neglecting, not willfully forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. As is the habit of some. Don't be the some. And then we're to encourage expectantly. Encourage expectantly. Again, we see the reason why regularly getting together with other Christians is important. It's an opportunity for encouragement. Let us consider how to stir up each other to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We meet together for a number of reasons, but one of those reasons, again, is to provoke to love and good deeds. And another reason here is to encourage each other in light of the coming of Jesus. As you see the day, the, the return of Jesus drawing near, we're called to encourage each other. Because listen, many of us go through a week like we've just gone through this past week and seeing the horrors of human depravity on display everywhere, including the church. And we need recalibrated. We need reminded that Jesus is coming again and he's gonna fix all this once and for all. And things will be made new and we will inherit an eternity that would be perfect, sinless, forever. And that is something we need to be reminded of because we can get down into to this, this bog, miry bog of, of human depravity and it's all around us in our own hearts. And we can forget that Jesus is coming again and he is King and Lord of all. Part of getting together is an opportunity to say, hey, brothers and sisters, remember that. You can see all that's going on in this world and in our own lives, and you can, you can be discouraged and weighed down and sorrowful and grieving. And yes, those things, are they, they have their place. But partly, getting together is an opportunity to remind each other that, I don't know why I keep pointing that way. I don't know which way he's coming. All right? Maybe he's coming again. He may come from that direction. I don't know. But he's coming again, he's going to return and he's going to, to make all things new. We need to be encouraged in that. We gotta be together to encourage each other in that. Listen, people need your encouragement and you need theirs. It's a need. It's not something that you can get to if it's convenient for your schedule, you need it. It's part of the way God designed us to be family and to be together for his glory so that you can encourage each other to expect Jesus' certain return. Well, because of Jesus, we have a strong confidence. And this confidence calls us to draw near to God, to persevere confidently in our confession and to consider others as we do all of that. And the context for this is not in isolation from other believers. The context is the community of believers where we can provoke and encourage each other and all of these things and more. The church is ground zero for not only learning to follow Jesus, but it's essential for being encouraged to keep following Jesus. 
I know over the last few years, we've, in the midst of this pandemic, we've heard this, this phrase, we're in this together. Well, brothers and sisters, I would submit to you today that that's not simply a slogan for a pandemic. It's our life as Christians. It's our life. Like we came up with that before the pandemic did. We are in this together because God through the gospel has called us to be together. We're gonna be together in this life and in the life to come. And we've got responsibilities to one another as we are called to live life together. The gospel has done this. And it's in this togetherness that we must continue in life and in mission until, until together we see him and are with him forever. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for these exhortations, these reminders. God, we thank you for the great work of redemption that Jesus Christ has secured on our behalf to give us confidence. And Lord, these exhortations that flow from that confidence are important for our lives as believers. So God, would you grant us grace to walk in them and Father, where we've been negligent, maybe where we've been wandering and wavering in faith, maybe, Lord, where we've been negligent in prayer, or maybe negligent in our relationship with other Christians, God, would you call us to see that and to confess and repent of it? Father, would you help us as a church to flourish in our togetherness for the good of each other and for the glory of your great name. God, help us. So Lord, we ask God that you would continue your good work, a work we know that you've started and a work that we know that you will bring to completion one day. But Lord, would you help us by your grace to persevere in the work of being together and the blessings and the impact that has for each and every one of us who know you. We pray this all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. At this time, we're going to stand and sing a song of commitment to the Lord. And as we sing this, let's be reminded of the debt that's been paid for us and the life we enjoy in Christ as a result. Let's sing.